So today we're talking about securitization, tokenization, and the trade coin system, chapters five and six of the book, Building the New Economy, Data as Capital, really got into the foundations of blockchain and crypto here, was a lot less about data privacy and data exchanges. But I think what they're doing is laying the foundation of what these blockchain systems are and what they do because they're going to make the argument about how they can be utilized for for solving some of these data problems so what did you think about these chapters jake i was a little disappointed because i felt like we were just getting into the data co-op stuff uh which I still just find really interesting trying to find real world examples and stuff. But, uh, you know, this book is building the new economy, got a lot of ground to cover. So uh, on the flip side, I I was, you know, happy with, uh, with what we moved on to the entire concept of tokenizing really just comes down to the fact that you can allow a cheaper, easier, uh, more efficient way to, allow everyone to own just about anything it's pretty cool yeah i think what they're going to be doing here is is making the argument for why you can use this in the data co-op model um essentially using Mm -hmm. smart contracts to compensate the members of a co-op so that everything is is trusted it's visible the code is open source you can verify it that's where i think this is going and so having the incentive set up having that all all configured there's some really interesting stuff by the way that i'm starting to notice after reading these chapters in my news feeds people i follow the stuff that we talked about music like the music industry um that, and the DAO stuff that's been happening this week. I'm sure you saw the Constitution DAO this week. Yeah. You, yeah, they tried to buy it. Yeah, so all this DAO stuff is really what I see happening. My prediction is that the, the DAO governance system is what gets used for the data co-ops. And there's some projects that came across my screen this week that imply this stuff's getting built. People are, are going for it. So... I think the authors are onto some stuff here. I don't know how prolific this book is. Like if people have been reading it a lot, I I don't know, but um, I'm seeing it, man. So there's reasons to be optimistic about the problems that we talked about in the past couple of weeks, I think. But I think that's where the DAO stuff goes. Um, These these transparent governance structures that are, are eventually become completely governed by code to remove the to remove some of the objectivity or the, the subjectivity of of bad actors and, and people and such. Um, one thing I mm-hmm. thought was, was really interesting here was just like the way, I mean, they, they just talk about kind of traditional asset-backed securities and they start to make this claim of creating a digital currency that's backed by a basket of assets. So in a way, I think they're kind of hinting on like going back to not the gold standard, but something similar where at least the premise is that the currency is backed by something valuable um, rather than just uh, an intangible right. power of a government. 
like the US dollar. So I really thought it was interesting comparing it to yeah. the ABS, like the SFX securities that really started to take off in the 80s, which we all know caused the big financial crisis of 08. But um, they make a really favorable comparison where they, they're pretty much shining a blockchain system in a very favorable light to that stuff. There's a couple holes in the way they point that stuff out, mm -hmm. I think. But in general, I, I would agree. I mean, this is a crypto podcast, so obviously I'm already a little biased, but um, there's a couple of holes. In, and I think the way they, they, they talk about it, like not every blockchain is, is completely transparent and there's private chains out there and such, but the, the premise is that these things can be designed in such a way to be transparent and reveal leverage in the system versus these crazy instruments that wall street packages and evolve into like crazy hydras of, of risk. What did you think about that stuff? Um, it was funny when they brought up the comparison to 2008, I remember shortly after 2008 happened probably a couple of years, 2008 happened when we were just finishing up high school. So by the time I became interested enough to actually figure out what the hell happened, because 2008 is fairly complex uh, with all the different actors, it was such a massive problem that tanked the entire economy. It's, it's, uh, it, it took me a while to wrap my head around. Um, and I remember listening to this one podcast it was like a deep dive and it mentioned how sometimes when these mortgages would get bundled and securitized, sold off, then chopped up again, and then rebundled and then resold off. This would happen to an extent that sometimes a company, uh, an investment firm would buy a package. And the only thing that they would get as far as what is actually in the security, like what are these mortgages, was just an Excel spreadsheet file with like a name and maybe one or two pieces of information. But it just the the fact that even the the Wall Street firms that were buying some of these, and I'm not saying this is indicative of every single instance, but there this is just a story of just how unbelievably inefficient this massive process was and it just gives you the impression like jesus this thing was barely being held together i, I can't believe it lasted as long as it did but so this idea of uh how a blockchain would be able to uh keep track of all this information and you know it's not like an excel file where you lose it it's gone forever the blockchain is robust enough that it, it can it, if you create a tokenization out of an asset or a group of assets, that information is, uh, you know, it, it's going to be available for an owner or, or even a lot of times they talk about how the metadata it will be like publicly available as well. So yeah, it was, it was uh, some obvious improvements to the old system definitely stood out. So it's, yeah. yeah, I thought I thought about that. I'll just make a couple of comments. I mean, number one, Satoshi's Bitcoin white paper was a result of the bank bailouts that happened after the 08 crisis. So I think they're they're kind of drawing the comparison on the ABS versus blockchain intentionally on that. I also think it's a little unfair to compare <laughs> the modern solutions of blockchain systems to the antiquated antiquated antique abs methods because 
Yeah, some of that ABS stuff is still happening, but like not the same way it was in 2007. So it's almost a little bit, I think, unfair to be drawing, you know, comparisons between today's modern approaches versus what we used to do. Because, I mean, 2008 already happened. We saw the flaws. So I don't know. I thought it was kind of... It, it was no that's fair because right. to go back to my example excel was a fairly i would say advanced for a lot of people even in 2007 and 8 whereas nowadays there are still plenty of people who don't like don't know how to work excel but we we've still come a long way where i doubt it's operating on such an inefficient level um so well yeah and that's where the blockchain right you have the, the wallet the block explorer you can anybody can go and parse that data and if you remember on the big short, when Michael Burry has his analysts just like look through all the law papers or whatever those things were, the law, legal filings to analyze like every single bond that was repackaged or whatever, you know, it was like an arduous task to, to try to figure all that stuff out, to figure out what was actually being owned. So here you have clear ownership rights. The leverage in the system can be fully revealed because you can see what the different institutions, I mean, who's owning these assets and what are they doing with it? Are they creating derivatives? All that DeFi stuff, like that's that's all transparent. That can be parsed together by analyzing the blockchain data. And you can use code to analyze the code so you can do it. I mean, not to say that it's very simple. I mean, some of this DeFi stuff that's happening with the flash loans right now. Uh, I mean, Cream had the crazy exploit. There's others too. It gets incredibly complex. So that's why I do kind of feel like they're they're making a little bit of an unfair comparison. However, the, like I said, the premise is an optimal system can be designed here to to do it the right way, and I think that's the main takeaway. Um, yeah. So, so as far as I don't know, if, are you talking about the trade coin system? Well, I'm just talking about how they compare asset backed securities of the '80s and '90s and 2000s to the to blockchain, and they just I just felt like it was a bit of an unfair comparison, but that I think the point has been made. Um, but as far as the trade coin system, yeah, that was, there was a lot of interesting, there was, there was more interesting stuff I thought in the trade coin article or chapter. Um, basically like the Swiss WIR cooperative, that was a really interesting example. I thought. Yeah. I don't really know much about that. That was my first time reading about it. Me too. But it, it, it actually reminded me of a couple of DeFi projects that I've seen that have tried to create a new token, like Blizzard. I, I think I talked about this a little bit in the first episode that you of this podcast that you you weren't on that one. But uh, this this DeFi vault on the BS on the Binance Smart Chain created this really. It was a little ponzinomic, like the way they did it, but it, it actually, in theory, in practice is kind of cool. Um, but the, essentially the WIR, the Swiss WIR cooperative, they they have like a dual currency. They, they issue their own currency, but it's a dual currency that goes in tandem with the Swiss franc. So members within this co-op, this economic circle, use two different currencies, but they're generating interest and so as they, I, I don't know, I'm probably not going to be able to explain it well, but I really thought it was interesting that 
because it reminded me of a couple products I've seen in DeFi that they're trying to do the same thing by creating like a price floor where interest gets generated on an asset and then gets locked up in a vault that nobody controls. They're sending these DeFi products are creating interest-bearing accounts to wallets that they burn the private keys to so that they can't actually go back in there. And then you can create a, a price floor on some of these tokens. It's really interesting stuff. But um, I don't know. What, what were some of the big, big themes you saw in that chapter that you thought were interesting to call out? So the one thing with an asset-backed currency, it used the parallel of the Bretton Woods system. And one thing I learned this year was that the U.S. has been on the gold standard, not just once, but three times. And all three times we got off of it. Uh, two times were directly after the World Wars. And I think the third was uh, sometime after the Great Depression. But um, I, I do know that we were on it three times. We got off. And so I... One thing that stood out to me is, is, is there a fundamental weakness in asset-based currencies? And if we've tried it a couple of times, Bretton Woods is not the same thing as what's being pitched here, but uh, I guess that's building in just a little hesitation on me to fully buy in, even though the system itself, uh, I do like, uh, it's funny, the, the idea of having, uh, you know, the assets being pledged by the sponsors and the sponsors handling the monetary policy through an administrator. Um, it just made me think of the NFL, uh, how all the owners, they elected their own boss and Roger Goodell, and he turns around and like finds them and can like kick them out of the league. It's a very weird power dynamic that I think is what's being described here. And, uh, so I was just trying to picture like where, like, like who would be the sponsors of a system like this? Is this, because obviously users would just be normal people. If, if we assume that this is a supranational currency, um, but. Yeah. I don't know where they're going with this stuff because the next chapter is about healthcare and it. And so I think the, the, the premise is, a, a group of people, right? It's, I don't view this as a top-down thing. I mean, they, they start to get into the central bank, talk about a central bank digital currency, but yeah, I mean, what is the, like, where are they taking this? As far as the authors are concerned, I don't know. And I don't know who, who does, who would do this. Um, practically speaking, like it could be back into this DAO aspect where perhaps you buy into a group. I mean, Think about the Constitution DAO. I, I don't. I haven't really read. I didn't read a lot about what they were doing. I understand the basics that they were bidding on a thing as a group of people, but I think what the premise also was that you were supposed to buy into this DAO. You get a token that represents your ownership of the group, and then the theory. The theory being that if they bought an asset, right. the, the Constitution copy, you would own a portion of the group that owns the asset thereby potentially owning like a piece of the asset itself in a roundabout way. So it's like a one-off use case for that particular DAO, right? Their, their whole premise of bringing people in is just to buy the one asset. And so that token that represents the ownership of the, into the DAO is one single asset 
And so this is talking about like a whole economy. Uh, I mean, a country doing this. Right. So I, I think that they're, I don't know. I don't want to put, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I just view this as much more narrow. The, the use cases have to start off very narrow, yeah. not like a world changing nationalist thing. And then they also made that case that this would be best done for small groups of countries who don't make up the world reserve currency. So potentially commodity based economies, you know, I'm thinking of like Venezuela or others where their currencies that have traditionally been backed by commodity production mm -hmm. are insanely volatile, or they just have incompetent central banks at those different countries. So yeah. I think there's examples there. So I, I don't know what geographic cohort that would be, but for, for this particular example, but I mean, I don't know, man. Yeah. So to, to your point, I can much more easily wrap my head around the idea of a, your first example with the ownership of the constitution, which by the way, was that a copy of the constitution? That wasn't like the actual copy. Yeah. There, so there are like 13, there are like 13 copies of the thing that were created after the original. Um, I know that rally road. Oh, like, yeah. Rally road had a copy. Okay. Like you could buy a share of it. Um, are you familiar with rally road? Uh huh. No. It's pretty cool, actually. I have a, I bought a share of a Giannis card. There was like, so what they do is they sell, they publicly, they do an IPO of an, with an asset. And you can go on there like a Robinhood style app and you can buy a share of an asset. So like they had a Giannis card after they won last summer for, it was valued at like $415,000 and you could buy $10 worth. So I bought like one or two shares. And so what they do is every year they have the assets mm -hmm. appraised. And so they had like a Super Nintendo, a Super Mario 3 cartridge in its original box or some Mario game from NES. And it sold for like a million dollars. And if you would have bought in when they first listed it, I thought, I think it like was listed at like $50 a share. And the thing went all the way to like $300 a share because they actually sold the cartridge to a private buyer for the, the market cap of it or whatever. It got, you know, appraised at like two or $3 million. So it's a, it's a super yeah. cool, I mean, look, I'm not shilling Rally Road, but I would say if you haven't checked it out, you, you should uh, get on there. You can buy shares of like cars, vintage wines, fashion bags, things. It's, it's really cool. So, you know, they're all about yeah. the fractional ownership of these crazy assets. But my point was that they had a constitution copy on there. One of these like 13 copies uh, several months ago. So it's not an original, it's okay. not the original constitution, but there are these like, you know, first edition drafts copies of it. <laughs> I feel like the United States would have to be in a pretty tough spot to actually start auctioning off the constitution. But, uh, dude, I don't know. It, Sotheby's it's Sotheby's like facilitated the sale. I don't know who actually, it's very interesting. I would be curious to know a little bit more about it. I didn't spend a lot of time reading up on that this week. It, it's just mm -hmm. kind of like fluff news. I thought, but. I tangentially was, re you know, seeing it on Twitter. Yeah. Well, so that all makes sense to me. That really is just the most concentrated portfolio. That's like an ETF with a one asset portfolio. Uh, that yeah. It doesn't sound crazy or like radical, like a vastly new idea or approach to me. So I, I can totally get behind the whole tokenization of a single asset. It's pretty cool, actually, because 
frankly, if one person can privately invest in something, there's no reason why the public shouldn't be able to participate as well on a fractional basis. Um, but that was one of my questions. I was trying to think if there was an asset that you think the public shouldn't have access to that really only makes sense at a private investor level. And uh, I guess the only thing I could come up with was maybe a sports team. But uh, yeah, what do you think? I don't know. That's a tough question. Like, so the question that you're asking is, is there any asset that tokenization should not happen for, like for the public to, to access? I mean, yeah. yeah. What do you uh, what do you think like uh, a private asset like the constitution like these constitution copies or are you talking about like ownership of a utility like at a co- community level? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, so so y- you actually just triggered a thought I've had, which is that I don't like the idea here of putting public infrastructure projects um, in this tokenization approach. I do not like it because I think it sets up for uh, a profit motivation. And even in the, well, the example they use in the book was, let's say there's a billion dollar hydroelectric jam, hydroelectric dam. Investors who have money to invest, so people with wealth, pledge the billion dollars. And as motivation, they get $2 billion back in energy credits. So, but what happens when the data is up and running? And $2 billion worth of energy is already being given out to the wealthy owners. And meanwhile, everyone else in the community who did not have the wealth to pledge to the construction of this hydroelectric dam, they're the only ones that are paying into this, to the operating costs. Because at that point, then the utility, you know, they can raise rates, but the only people who are going to be paying those higher rates are the people who didn't have the wealth in the first place. And it just seems like you create, because right now when a dam is built, let's say in Milwaukee, I don't like, yeah, I know my taxes partly go to that, but I don't feel this direct ownership. Like, well, this is mine. But if I choose to throw a thousand dollars at it, I now feel a very direct ownership over this particular project and I just think that undermines some of the, I guess, the, the feelings that, you know, we're all in this one together. We're all building this for all of our good. Uh, the, the community notion behind infrastructure. That's my concern with tokenizing public infrastructure. Sure. I actually like that example. Um, so I'm on the opposite side of that one. Because I thought that they made the case that the project itself financially would only return a little bit, but you have to analyze it from a social benefit perspective where the the thing is maybe not going to make that much money. I mean, if, if I don't know, you, you make a good point. Um, who, who chooses to raise rates on that utility, that water? And, and why would they do that? But I think the argument would be that it's a socially owned asset. So 
whatever gets generated in terms of revenue goes back into the public utility because it's a public utility. So I don't know the, the details beyond beyond that, but I, I kind of like the, the example because the whole ecosystem theoretically benefits from clean energy that that doesn't just go away when the oil's gone or however they're doing it. Yeah, well, I guess another concern is that if you leave the funding of public infrastructure up to the whims of effectively private investors rather than a public governmental entity, I think you lose some accountability and... Yeah, but they, they thought that, that, that the project requires the participation of government regulators and local people. Okay. So I think, I think you make yeah. a good point. If unlet, you know, if an unchecked public infrastructure investment has no regulatory oversight or hopefully a scrupulous social steward, you know, community level organizers and leaders who are gonna actually objectively be like good, um, then yeah, that could that could probably go pretty badly. Um, but I think you know, and come back yeah. to my naive optimism. I mean, I think there's a way to do it right. And I would maybe look to, to say like space exploration or think about the, the space race and how that was probably not going to be something any private company funded going to the moon. But, um, yeah, you could potentially do things like that. So I don't know. I mean, that's a little bit out there, but yeah, I think there's ways to do it, to do incentive structures, um, would be keen to see more communities maybe experiment with that, but maybe not to the tune of a billion dollars just to prove it as a concept before we really just go for it. But, um, not that it was a good example, man. I'm with you. Like the idea of, yeah, of tokenizing a, a playground on an existing park. I, I think, uh, yeah, starting small, scaling up, which is a point you've made in the past. And I think a point the authors have too. um, these are bold, ambitious, broad ideas that hopefully can scale to at the national or global level. But yeah, I, th- I think we start small, prove that it works, prove that this is a new way of doing things that's that's better, and uh, yeah, yeah, just just show your work. Yeah, no doubt. Well, all right, um, we talked about a lot of the different topics here. I mean, the, the remainder of the of the chapter was really super technical. And I kind of glossed through it just because I didn't think there was much to discuss. They they just kind of outlined like how this could could look from a technology level. So uh, next chapter is on healthcare and IT and how maybe you could copy some of this stuff from the blockchain into the data cooperative model that the earlier episodes talked about. So I think we're about to get into some really practical stuff where they they start to connect the economic dots. So we'll we'll talk about that maybe next week, maybe not. I mean, it's holiday weekend next weekend, but um, either way, we'll we'll come back soon. Any last thoughts, Jake? Oh uh, no, no man, we're trucking. Um, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Man, I'm going back to the homestead tomorrow. Um, nice. Going to spend the week there, and yeah, what about you? Uh, locking down with, uh, Ada's she'll be four weeks old next Wednesday. So, um, I think my mom is going to come by just have a small thing, but, uh, we're, uh, we're taking it. Awesome. So 
Good stuff. Good stuff. That'll be fun. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I'll catch you on Discord and we will talk soon. Sounds good, bud. Good to talk to you. You too. Catch you later. All right, see ya.